Will Ashton, I hope you had a great holiday. Hey, what up? I hope you had a good holiday as well. I I was pulling for it. I know you had some fun travels. You had a nice time, I hope. Yeah, I did. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. And, you know, I've been taking a little bit of of a break from the movies. I haven't been watching a a ton. Have you, though? Uh, A few. Not as many during the weekend, but I'm kind of getting back in the habit of it right now. Mm -hmm. We're talking about Babylon. And I haven't introed the show formally. Because Babylon, like Babylon, I want to do the title card about 30 minutes in. <laughs> okay. If you're okay with that. Sure, why not? While we're sitting here waiting, of course, for the the triumphant beginning of this episode, the, the movie, the listeners can't wait to hear us talk about. A movie that I assume our listeners haven't watched if the box office is to be acknowledged. I think I think it would be prudent to do an off-topic session. Uh, I can't say it. Off-topics section. Sure. Well, yeah. there's a lot's been going on in the world... A film. I made a little bit of a multiple choice, though. Okay. I, I want you to. I want you to pick. Here, are the, here are the options. You ready? Sure. Avatar two box office. We could talk about that. Okay. We could discuss the ins and outs of how that's doing. We could. There's Glass Onion, which just came out on Netflix, and mm-hmm. it seems like the internet has collectively lost its mind. Okay. So we could talk about that, or you know what? We could do a grab bag of awards season. In general, the prestige movies that have been flopping, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish being the next Paddington, it looks like, White Noise and Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody, coming out and nobody caring. Th- these are the things we could also talk about. So what do you, what do you think, Will? Which, which of these, or do you want to be the most ambitious Damien Chazelle-like co-host on Cinemaholics and try to just do it all? Three and a half hour episode. I mean, I think we've already said our piece about Glass Onion. I don't think we really need to dive into other people's opinions on it. So I'm going to say no to option B. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think C is just too broad reaching for an off topic. I think that just that's going to get us into a like 40 minute conversation that I would rather just kind of get into the thick of it with Babylon because I think there's enough to say with that movie. So I'm going to go with option A because I also like mm. talking about Hollywood's successes rather than Hollywood's failures at the moment. I love this decisiveness, right? Because I didn't prep you. You had no idea what I was going to bring up. I imagine you might have had your suspicions, right? So, all right, then the Will Ashen has spoken. He is, of course, the the man of the people. So we respect his wishes. Now let's talk about Avatar The Way of Water box office and hey you know what well it is kind of fitting isn't it because we reviewed the movie last week we reviewed it before the box office was even a factor we now got some numbers right it's been 13 days since the movie came out and you know you and i are we had the holiday we're recording this a little bit later than we usually would in the scheme of things but hey it's working out to the favor of this movie because uh, you know that means that we have a little extra time to sort of see how avatar the way of water is doing have you looked at the box office for this thing do you know how it's doing i am assuming you're talking about the global box office and not the domestic box office is that correct i'm talking about both okay i believe last i saw that the global box office was nearing or at a hundred or sorry 900 million dollars worldwide it's even higher so they're saying it's going to hit a billion 
by the end of the day. So we're recording oh, wow, this okay. on a Tuesday. Okay. As of Monday, you know, the day after Christmas, for those who might be checking in a little late on this episode, it made $955.1 million worldwide. Mm-hmm. And I know, look, I've been, I've been locking horns with some people about this because some people, you know, James Cameron, he, he said something about the movie having to gross like $2 billion to to make a profit. And I genuinely think if you really look at the context, he was exaggerating and goofing around and having fun. And, but people have taken that as like gospel, like they're his accountant or something, because people are saying that this movie is underperforming and is like, oh my gosh, this is a failure. And when I brought this up and I've said, no, no, like this movie, it maybe needs like eight to 900 million to get to the break even point based on the marketing costs, how much of the share it gets from the studio or how much the studio gets from the ticket sale versus the, the theater and all of that. And of course the production budget, all of that nonsense at at the same time though, people are like, no, 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 you're wrong because it's not doing that great domestically, or it's not going to do that great domestically. I think we have reached the point where that is uh, just silly talk. Will, is that fair to say? This thing's churning out millions in profit, like hundreds of millions in profit. There's no doubt. Yeah. I mean, it was a full errand for anyone to uh, bet against James Cameron. If history has proven anything is that the man has fortune by his side and that he is prevailed against trouble time and time again. Now, I mean, I don't know for sure. I mean, for all I know, by next week, Avatar 2 is going to, you know, dip enormously. And who knows, Megan maybe is going to, like, sink its profit. Who knows? But at the moment, like you said, if it's nearing or at a billion dollars at the moment, that's not a flop. Like, I mean, no matter how much the movie costs, like, I mean... I, I do think there's maybe some kernel of truth. To, I think what James Cameron was saying, I don't think I agree with you in the sense that like he was fully joking, but I don't think he was being, you know, I don't think he was being totally serious, but I think there was some kernel of truth in the sense that like if the movie cost, let's just say somewhere between three and four hundred million dollars to make, and that's not counting marketing, it would have to make somewhere in the ballpark of 800 million to break even then probably a billion to earn a profit so now we're actually kind of seeing the movie go from being in the blue to in the green yes and so yeah and again I mean, it's only been 13 days <laughs> like, right. that's, that's, that's the other thing, thing right. to keep bringing in yeah and then and that's what makes those takes that we keep seeing uh in like the early weekend for the film so funny and so presumptuous that they were like oh it's not making this amount of money like we you know whatever arbitrary number they designated that the film needed to make to be a hit because they're so used to movies being front-loaded in their profit. And that was the thing about Titanic in the first avatar is that, yeah, I mean, it made decent money on the onset, but it continued to gain a profit and a worldwide audience with each successive weekend. And like we said, it's still too early to know for sure what's going to happen with that, but it, it does seem like, you know, it, it's favoring well for James Cameron. If he's already making this much money in the matter of like two weeks, like I, I can't see this one uh, being anywhere considered a flop. There are people I like and respect who predicted that this movie would not be successful. And even at this point are still denying its success saying the movie, the original movie, the first one, didn't have a cultural impact. I've seen a lot of that argument floating around, people saying, but who dressed up as a Navi for Halloween? And I, I do think it is kind of an interesting thing. I, I ultimately think that the, that entire sort of outlook has been utterly disproven. People know what Avatar is. I, I think that there is an interesting 
sort of conversation and debate to be had about, well, how do you define pop cultural impact? Like, okay, is it a Halloween costume? Is it how many books get written? Is there like a secret underground fandom that is far reaching, right? There are things that people will look at and say, okay, Avatar The Last Airbender had an unbelievable amount of cultural impact because it influenced a lot of trends and things like that. Well, okay, Avatar did the same thing with 3D movies, with sort of taking the prototypical, you know, myth story tropes that are very, very basic in the plot, but then the world building is what's complex. Avatar certainly did something like that in terms of like its cinematic influences. I just think that when you have a sequel, okay, this is the second Avatar. This isn't another James Cameron movie doing the same thing, but a different story. This is the same characters, the same design but obviously revamped for a sequel, people showed up. That means it did. It, it did impact the culture. There are people who remember the first Avatar and like, well, I want to see another one. And I just think it's weird that people want to pretend like people don't like Avatar. It's like you can certainly argue that like popular movies don't always have cultural impact. Popular movies aren't always good just because they're popular. Of course, of course. But come on, like this movie is popular and people really like it. I, I just don't get why that's like a weird thing for some people to accept. Yeah, I mean, it was so uh, prevalent on the theatrical experience. And I think that was a big reason why the re-release earlier this year, I think made somewhere in the ballpark of like $75 million. And why mm -hmm. when it was re-released in China uh, in 2020, when movies weren't coming out, it was able to upset like Avengers Endgame as highest grossing film globally of all time. And I, I just think, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that, um, yeah, its culture impact maybe isn't as keyed into its characters or story beats, though I think that's also somewhat negligible as far as like, I don't know. I, I think the immersive experience of it was so key to why people loved that first movie, why they kept coming back, why there was that support group and how to with John Wilson. And yeah, I mean, I think the fact that, you know, now 13 years later, we have a new Avatar experience, that world that people really got immersed into. And now you get to see some of that again and some new elements with it as well. It, it Yeah, it's just becoming another kind of uh, runaway success. And I imagine it's going to keep doing well, especially considering that I think people are, you know, in addition to the people who've already seen the film, there are a decent number of people who, if they're not going to go see it again, they're already probably waiting to see it because there's been like, you know, global snowstorms throughout the country. And also the fact that they probably want to get the premium theater experience for it. Like they know that this is an event. They're not, I mean, I'm sure people throughout the country are going to see this in regular, you know, um, theaters. But I think a lot of people are trying to make sure they see it in IMAX and Dolby and really get the full, you know, immersive 3d experience that way which is i'm sure adding to the box office revenue but also probably going to add to its continued growth in the weeks to come well i can now say will i did watch the movie again second time and there is i think an inferior experience at least in my opinion and to me that was seeing it in the regular 3d I didn't think it was nearly as interesting and immersive as when I had watched it in the Dolby 3D, where it's the Dolby Atmos IMAX where at, at the AMC, where they have like the special glasses. So not just like the glasses and the plastic or whatever, but I, it, for whatever reason, the, the high frame rate did not translate in this format. And then also I, I watched it in the 4DX and, you know, it was kind of cool. It was gimmicky, obviously. It's 40X, but, you know, it's like you're in a roller coaster or whatever. 
But yeah, there was something about the way that I watched it at the, uh, it was a Regal theater this time where I was like, hey, I could actually see why there could be some people who might have screened this movie and had a vastly different experience than I did, honestly, because there must be a lot of gaps in between the different formats that people have available to them. I do wonder if that had something it has something to do with some of the folks uh, in, in, like British critics. There were a lot of British critics who were like, what the heck, you know, and I could almost see what their point is when I watched it. Like Regal is more, I think of a British chain or Cineworld or whatever it is, is kind of based out there. And I was really unimpressed with the Regal presentation versus the AMC one. And I hardly ever say that. I almost always go for Regal first. Yeah. Mid- and century. Yeah. You aren't the type of guy who goes to bath for AMC. In fact, you kind of criticize me. Because uh, I usually I tend do. to do the AMC, and that's not really out of choice. It's because I, that's really kind of the the only theater chain that uh, I have in my area for the most part. But yeah, I am surprised to hear that. I moved to a totally different part of the Bay Area, and one of the things that thrilled me the most about the move was that the main theater was a Regal Theater, where I was used to the AMC Theater. Based, uh, there's a bunch of them in San Jose and, and all of that, and they are just. I think a lot of it has to do with whatever area you're in, your region, because I've been to some AMCs that were top notch. But yeah, Silicon Valley AMCs are run down. They're they're pretty awful, uh, generally speaking. So all that to say, if you've been listening and you haven't seen the movie or you had a different experience than us, I do wonder if that is part of it. So I, I know we, we got to move off this. You know, we got to get into Babylon. We got to talk about the Well, event. yeah. I was going to say, I mean, viewing experience is definitely going to play a hand, I think, in our conversation about Babylon, Hmm. because you and I had very different viewing experiences for that film. And I'm very curious how that's going to lend itself to this conversation. I was just going to mention one more thing, and it is still kind of related to the Avatar thing. It is also kind of related to the Glass Onion thing that we didn't talk about and whatever else. Can I get something off my chest while it's been bothering me? What is that? I just got to say it. I just got it. Okay, I know a lot of a lot of people who listen to this show, they're not on Twitter. They don't care. They're sure. like, okay, I, I go to this, I go to Cinema Hawks podcast, I listen mm. to a couple movie podcasts, that's it. Maybe yeah. on YouTube, who knows? They're uh, probably frankly better off for not being on Twitter, I'll be honest. And that's my point. I, I genuinely think using Twitter to catch up on movies and talk to people about movies, it's it's dying if not dead. I genuinely I barely looked at Twitter during the holidays, every time I did, I regretted it. I just think at least my timeline, however the algorithm is working me, and I do think the algorithm has gotten significantly worse over the last month or two. Gee, I wonder why. I'm seeing things now that I'm just like actively, I'm just not interested in. And specifically, the, the whole culture of people on Twitter talking about movies has become aggressively uninteresting to me and unfun. All it is to me at this point is people either complaining about, you know, what's going on around a movie, people complaining about people. I like these people like this movie too much. These people don't like this enough. And it's people just sort of shilling for whatever movie they want to win a bunch of awards because maybe they're working on some piece for a big outlet that they have to pitch. And so they have to be seen as the movie's biggest champion. Like I like they're warriors for this movie's success. And it's just, it feels like Twitter has become for me an onslaught of press releases. I'm getting so tired and sick of it. I don't know if you've been feeling it. I think that it's hit a fever pitch 
this award season. And so I just wanted to get that off my chest that I just, I, I really am glad that we have this outlet because you and I can just kind of mm. talk and hang out sure. and actually talk about the movies. I want more conversations about movies. That's what it used to be at least more mm. directly. But now if I want to talk about an actual movie, I gotta, I gotta call you up on the phone or go on Letterboxd. That's it. Sure. I, I feel like a war season, not, specifically this year but in general has always been kind of a hell pit for discourse and the conversation i don't think it's mutually exclusive to this year but, but I there's don't think- always been bright spots and i feel like those bright spots are dwindling if even there anymore i mean i was gonna say to your credit i i do think it's getting more intense earlier on this year like I'm seeing a lot of backlash for everything everywhere all at once already. I don't know if it's just because that movie came out earlier and there's already been kind of cycles of conversation about that film. And I'm already kind of seeing a variety of conversations about the Fablemans. Some of it seems out of line. Some of it's interesting. Some of it I find amusing, whatever. Uh, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, yeah. And even with Banshees, I'm seeing some, you know, kind of odd conversation about that film. And I've certainly seen my fair share of discourse about, avatar the way of water but yeah i don't know i mean i can't i can't say it's better or worse than most other years just because i find it to be just kind of uh exhausting and frustrating in general um but yeah i can see what you mean at the same time i'm gonna extend an invite because i know there are a lot of people who listen to this show who know what i'm talking about and because i mean who among us doesn't tire of the twitter just app in general come join the discord on in between drafts, do it because on there we can actually we can talk and like people aren't just uh, anonymously replying and reacting to things. There actually is some conversation people can be having about movies on there, so that's fun. So I'll uh, you know I'll find a way to extend that invite because I can only invite like a link that it, it like expires or whatever. So if you're interested in joining the Discord, I don't know, just email us, podcast at gmail.com. I'll send you one and uh, come hit us up and hang out with us. That'd be great. So with that with that out of the way. Got that off my chest. Thank you, Will. I, I needed some therapy. I needed I needed the old Ashton touch, right? I think that means it's time for us to talk about Cinemaholics, the major motion podcast, where we discuss the biggest and best films coming to theaters and streaming online. I did it a little early. Why not? Uh, I was going to say, yeah, you, you, I thought you were going to wait 30 minutes now. <laughs> well, you know what? I decided, Hey, like, that, that made sense for 30 minutes. Cause that's a three and a half hour movie. I don't think we're going to, I don't think we're going to have a three and a half hour pod. Oh. So I think, we, I think we can cut it back, but yeah, well, I, I, made, I don't think it's, I made that decision. Well, Babylon's only three hours, right? It's not three and a half. Yeah. Who knows? I, I can't keep track of what's what length anything is anymore. Isn't it three hours and eight minutes long? I'll look it up. I don't remember. I, I don't have it memorized. Well, hmm. not 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 right now not ever okay it's sure. 189 minutes so yes three hours now that said babylon fifth film from damien chazelle this is the second film from him that we've talked about because we started doing the show in 2017 so right after la la land you know i didn't you know we talked about la la land on uh the precursor to this podcast but yeah the only movie we formally reviewed together i believe is first man yeah which you know, most critics liked it kind of sure. came and went. It, it didn't have like the biggest buzz around it. I had Ryan Gosling and, mm-hmm. you know, I think if, if it had been about jazz, maybe it would have done better. Who knows? But it uh, yeah, was this, uh, yeah. a little bit about jazz, but not uh, <laughs> entirely about jazz as his other films tend to be. I guess that makes sense when you if you actually watch the movie. But, you know, I mean, he came out that movie. I think that a lot of people looked at it as a bit of a failure for the guy mm-hmm. because he was coming off hot, you know, from 
Whiplash and La La Land, which one, two hit punch. Whiplash was sure. kind of a surprise awards favorite that did super well. A lot of people consider it his best film. And uh, it was a movie that, you know, took in a couple of awards. And then La La Land came out, and that was the big, you know, the big front runner for best picture. Obviously, one of the weirdest Oscar moments to happen in history. Uh, obviously happened with that movie in Moonlight. And there was obviously a lot of backlash to La La Land in 2016 for people who remember it. Uh, a lot of people who are like, you know what, this is fantastical, weird, I don't like it. It's uh, whimsical and what the heck. And I know you and I were you and I were in the can for La La Land. You know, I still listen to that soundtrack routinely. I, I genuinely mm-hmm. love the vibes, uh, even though it is a, a fairly flawed film that sure. I, I appreciate anyway, you know, in a way it's like jazz, you know, it's, it's almost like it's pleasantly <laughs> imperfect. And uh, I know you've, you've long said, you know what? Good movie. Sure. Yeah. yeah I guess you, I was, the joke I was going to make is you say it hits all the right and the wrong notes. No yeah. notes. It's not supposed to hit. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I thought whiplash was amazing. Like I really thought that movie was an incredible calling card. I, I know, like you said, it's not technically his uh, directorial debut. That was uh, right. Guy, Madeline. Guy Madeline on a park bench, 2009. Yeah. Not a lot of people saw it. I was going to say, I, I have not seen that film. I didn't know if you had seen it. I have not. It, it's like a, I know it's like a black and white movie. It's kind of, a, it, it, it's sort of the prototype of La La Land. Is what uh, I've heard. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it sounds like it's like kind of taking a cinema verte style to an MGM like yes. Technicolor type musical, which is a very interesting concept. I don't know if that works. It feels like the type of film that seems like very first filmy, but I'm very much eager to check it out at some point. I just never got around to it. But yeah, Whiplash was such a, you know, kind of breath of fresh air. It felt like a incredible calling card for Damien Chazelle. Obviously, it got Oscar consideration, a few wins. Um, and then, yeah, La La Land, uh, likewise, you know, Got a lot of praise, obviously got a lot of criticism, you mentioned, kind of became a source of infamy and different respects. And then First Man, I think people's expectations, including mine, were maybe a bit skewed. It's a film that I've, I'll admit I've grown to like more with time. I've only seen it once, but the more I've reflected upon it, the more I think I really appreciate what that movie is or what it does. And also where it stands in Damien Chazelle's catalog of films, as far as like his technical precision, the way that he... Uh, tackles characters who are kind of drawn to a sense of greatness and perfection, even if it uh, sacrifices their personal well-being and happiness in the process. I think that's something that I find very compelling and singular to his work. Uh, but this film, uh, it was a big swing, I will say. It's a big uh, swing. Yeah. And there was one other big project that he that Chazelle was attached to. He originally wrote a draft of 10 Cloverfield Lane. He was going to direct it. But right before all that went down, he ended up getting the funding he needed to do Whiplash. So that's when Dan Trachtenberg kind of came in. They did a rewrite of the draft again. I think that uh, Chazelle's version of the script was already a rewrite. So it was kind of a rewrite of a rewrite. Nevertheless, he still is a credited writer on 10 Cloverfield Lane, although it is, I believe, still kind of unclear what the some of his contributions were for that movie. But either way, I mean, 10 Cloverfield Lane, a uh, really great 10, 2016 movie there. So, yeah, I have to agree with you. There, there was one other thing that he did uh, after First Man, which was the Eddie. He was the creator, executive producer, and director of two episodes of that show, which hit Netflix, which is kind of this sort of jazz odyssey, sort of modern uh, f- uh, show, you know, sure. very cinematic kind of show that takes place in France. And mm-hmm. it, it, yeah, it was just like kind of a, a mini series with a pretty, I thought, low stakes. It wasn't a series that I could get through. 
You know, okay. I watched the two I, episodes that he directed, and I, I genuinely lost interest despite mm-hmm. me being a big fan of Andre Holland. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a type of show where when it was announced, I'm like, oh, I'm all for it. I'm going to check yeah. this out. I'm going to watch it. In classic Netflix fashion, I'm like, oh, I, I didn't get to it this week. It came out, but I'll get to it next week. And then another week passes, and another month passes, and a year passes, and I still never got around to watching it. Uh, it's not really the show's fault. I just think it never really, like you said, sparked that much discourse. It didn't feel like I, it was a must-see thing. Like, I never really saw it on, like, best year list or, like, you know, it's not something that I've heard yeah. outside of of you talking about it previously so uh i just never got around to it but um yeah it was something i was curious and i never about. pushed you in that direction i never was like well you're missing out because yeah. i genuinely didn't feel that way right so so yeah so here we are now here we are with babylon a lot of a lot of a uh, context i think we need to set this up because in a lot of ways babylon's a hard movie to if, if you are a cinephile if you are somebody serious about film it's a hard movie to watch out of that context of who is behind it because i think chazelle's sweaty directorial style informs a lot of it and could possibly impact how much you like or dislike the movie i don't know i'm gonna start out here and say you and i've already talked about this movie a little bit together uh, off the air. We're both aware to some extent of how the other person feels about it. Uh, I know that you like it more than I do, Babylon. I know that uh, also you're aware that as much as I I like moments in this, as much as I, I watched this movie and found myself really respecting it, really admiring the swing, as you already mentioned, and, and just the fact that this thing exists, just the fact that somebody let Damien Chazelle make this kind of movie and was so confident in his ability to churn out an award season movie that probably wasn't going to do amazing box office at first, but they're obviously hoping it has legs over the course of award season, all that stuff over the next couple of months. I love all of that in, in theory, but ultimately, ultimately, it's a movie for me, and I don't know how you if this has happened to you to some extent. I'm uninvolved with this movie. The, the emotion didn't hit me. The even though it sounds like I'm choking up, uh, but no, I I genuinely got through this movie, not feeling any sort of emotional connection to the people here, and I've been racking my brain for why that is. Why don't I care about Diego Calva's character Manny in this? Why does the Margot Robbie character continuously just lose me as a presence who I'm rooting for? Why does the Brad Pitt character just not? you know, hit me with that sense of dread. The movie is even invoking one of my favorite old school Hollywood movies left and right to, to almost an annoying point, which is singing in the rain. And obviously it's a movie about that transition from the silent film era. And it's wild improvisational people died while making this attitude and spirit of filmmaking, how that transitioned to the talkies when films started to have the ability to record sound so that we could actually, Oh my gosh, like the, the magic of movies hit an amazing milestone. But here's the story that people might've left behind. That should be hitting me in every cylinder. It's a movie that I should be falling for its indulgences, its excess, because it's a movie that I think that I normally would graft onto. I walked away from it just not able to have that heartful connection to it. The soul of it left me. I don't know what it is. You have a theory, right? I'll let you say. Your theory is because the way that I watched it. I watched it as a screener. And it, and look, you can you can criticize me all day. I watch it as a screener because I wanted to consider it for Critics' Choice nominations. There's no way for me to see it otherwise. 
And I, I get it. So go ahead and say your piece. I, I want to hear it. I mean, to be clear, I don't think that's the only reason you have criticisms of the film. Like, I, I don't think it's exclusive to that. Uh, nor do I think, um, you know, that y y what you're saying is invalid. Like, I think even though I do like this movie a little bit more than you do, I do very much recognize the flaws. And it's one of those films I feel like I like almost in spite of the things I think are not very good. Because I kind of go into this film... You know, I wrote a review for it at In Between Drafts. You edited a review. I I felt like throughout the review, I was talking a lot about the things I didn't really like. I kind of broke down a lot of stuff that I feel doesn't really work. I thought you were going to say, it's like you were talking to me because you knew I was going to be editing it. And it's like, I got to uh, get through to John. I got to find a way. No, honestly, I think I was kind of more just rationalizing with myself, to be honest. I think I was just kind of just like, mm, I knew how I felt about the film. Like, I knew I liked it. I, I recognized I thought it was a pretty good film. But, like, I was also kind of internalizing, like, well, why do I feel this way? Because I don't really think this works. And I don't think that really works. And I don't think this really comes together. And I think this is too – it's trying too hard to do this. And I think it's not quite succeeding at that. It's too much of a pache of this. And I I think – for me, I, I mean, like you said, I mean, it, it, part of it is maybe the fact that I had seen this uh, not only in theaters, but I saw it at the Dolby. I was very fortunate that the uh, advanced screening I was given uh, was shown in like the biggest, most bombastic presentation possible, which I think for this film added tremendously to the um, whole thing. Like, it's, I know it's, it breaks your heart because I had the chance to see this at the Castro Theater in San Francisco. Damien Chazelle was in attendance. Sure. My old editor at Awards Watch, Eric Anderson, conducted the interview. I would have been front row, hmm. but I couldn't make it. Sorry, I had a uh, tennis practice. Sure. Um, but yeah, That's I mean, a joke. I did not have tennis, <laughs> <laughs> but sure. I did have a conflict. Sorry. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think what you're saying is true in the sense that like, I think it's outlined tremendously. Like, I, I don't think what it's doing is especially novel. I agree with you. Obviously, uh, you know, Singing in the Rain is the big main influence here to uh, the point where it's not even subtle about that as the ending, uh, especially will note. I mean, it's also not very subtle about how much it takes away from Boogie Nights uh, in the same way yeah. that, you know, Damien Chazelle's previous film, La La Land, was very indebted to uh, Punch Your Own Glove. I this almost film, appreciate how unsubtle it is. I'm like, thank you, Damien. You, you didn't need to be subtle and you knew it. Sure. Um, but I mean, you know, I, I think the idea here that like people keep talking about like, oh, it's yet another film, uh, another yet another love letter to cinema in a way that like they're treating it like it's the artist 2.0 or something, which is another film that that shows the transition from silence to talkies in a very kind of stylistic pache way i don't think that's necessarily true i think that's partially true but the film by design is a lot more critical and cynical about the filmmaking industry it like you said it recognizes that it's very grueling it's very intensive it's a it's a lot of hustle and bustle for, you know, very few results. And you're just kind of hoping that you stake a claim in, in infamy or, you know, the film legacy. And, and it's the idea of like, well, what is really art doing? Like, is, is it worth all that trouble? Is it worth the, the soul crushing intensity that comes with such a profession? And I feel like the movie is smart about not really giving clear answers to that, but it is, I think, maybe a little too beholden to that epic format to the point where it feels like it's hitting expected beats and not really honoring the 
intended sort of like crazy zaniness that it's going for. Cause I feel like it gets so caught up in trying to do like kind of the Wolf of Wall Street thing where it's, you know, you're kind of drunk on the power and the allure and the majesty of Hollywood to the point where you have this very sort of Fellini esque opening 30 minute sequence where you see like a one night party sequence where there's a literal elephant in the room and there's like naked women and men jumping around and, you know, literal piles of cocaine and all that stuff. It's not a very subtle film. But I I do find myself, even in spite of all these very obvious and kind of clunky details, I think admiring the ambition, like you said, the 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 swing of it all, and the fact that we aren't going to get a lot of films that are willing to be, like you said, this indulgent, this bombastic, and to the point where it's not only bombastic and over the top, but like clearly uh chazelle is someone who i think is a very confident capable director even if i think this is probably weaker than his last three films i do think it is good in select moments like the scenes where it works it really pops like and that's particularly the two uh scenes i alluded to earlier where we see like the characters trying to like make one perfect little moment on film there's all these different complications there's all these different things people are literally dying for their art and you just you you, you get caught up in tom cross's editing and the the swooning score of it and the like you said the kind of singing bombasticness of it and yeah i mean i think as a sort of visceral theatrical experience it works i don't really think it gets you involved enough to the point where you feel like you've truly watched a great epic film but the fact that we're getting a film like this especially on what feels like kind of the tail end of this kind of hollywood era where we don't really know if we're going to get movies like this at all, or really movies in general, and a film that is recognizing kind of the beauty and terror of making films in general. I don't know. It's hard for me not to get kind of swept up by design by that, but I, I do find myself wishing by that same token that I had more investment in the characters and the story along the way. Look, here's the thing. I And I, I've seen people kind of debating and dissecting this. There, there are some people who say Damien Chazelle, he hates movies. Right. Or he you kind of pointed at it when you were saying it's more of like it's a movie that's a little bit cynical about the movie making process because of how much we see of what goes on with the 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 whole process of it. It takes away the glamour, the sort of glossiness that movies like Singing in the Rain obviously presented to a totally different audience. Well, you know what? It's 2022. We have a modern sensibility. We all know the score. I shouldn't say we all know. Some people still look at Hollywood as the dream machine, as a place where, sure, there, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of like a magical nature to it, American dream, that kind of like fantasy, right? That I think La La Land was dabbling in quite a bit, wasn't it? And I think that it's Damien Chazelle being like, hey, well, hold on, hold on. I, I know I know things things aren't this amazing and fantastical. I know that there aren't always happy endings or, you know, sort of like, oh, we didn't get everything we wanted, but at least we got something. Sometimes this stuff can actually be genuinely alarming. And what I get from the movie or what he's trying to accomplish and say is that to what you're saying, it's not just about dying for your art. It's not the inherent nature of what it takes to make a film that is wrong. It's the people. And I think he's pointing at it's it's the people not caring. It's the people who are risking not their life and limb, but the life and limb of others. That is what feeds into Hollywood being this wildly dangerous place, like literally a wild west that kind of transitions into this sort of underworld, you know, evil place where people are just, you know, their lives are on the line and all that. And so or their their lives, like I'm, I'm speaking of like the Tobey Maguire thing and like literally going into the depths of hell to that point, 
I think there are three sequences in this movie that full-on work, not a lot of notes from me. One of them, no notes whatsoever, and that is the entire stretch of the film post the party, where we are just spending a day going through the the process of all these different movies going on and we're just sort of running through this like area in los angeles or the outskirts or whatever i imagine like nope took place like a mile away uh you know a hundred years later or whatever and we are just generally watching all these silent films being made the mayhem the chaos of it all of it fully worked for me all of it just sort of cut together and all the tension of it, the, you know, the frantic nature, we got to get to this place, we got to get the camera over here, we have to rent out the camera, this person just died, like, seeing all these things happen, all these sets, everything sort of happening in the back, that is Hollywood to me of this era, and he captures it so well, he captures it in a way where Buster Keaton would have watched it and been like, yeah, that's pretty close. So to me, that scene totally hits its mark. Then we have a long stretch of the movie where I'm like, I don't care. Then we have, uh, I think, the scene you were referencing where Margot Robbie playing Nellie LeRoy is trying to do just one yep. scene. Well, I, I'm referencing both these scenes, to be clear. Sure, but yeah, okay. Yeah. Which I, I generally think is like, it, it reminds me of Hail Caesar, which I think, by the way, Hail Caesar, better version of this movie. I, I know a lot of people say, Singing in the Rain, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Wolf of Wall Street. I, I think Hail Caesar, if you want to get more specific to what this movie is trying to say about Hollywood, I think it's a better movie. Regardless. That scene where we literally have Bo Lin from The Legend of Korra just like shouting his face red and them just trying to get this like one moment the producer literally walks in. I mean, it's just gangbusters. Uh, almost no notes on that scene, too. And then I also, you know what? People can you know criticize me for this, but I genuinely love the entire stretch of the movie where Diego Calva's uh, character, Manny, is, you know, with the Tobey Maguire character going into literally Dante's Inferno. And I loved it so much because as somebody who is not shy about how much I hate the culture of LA, I don't like visiting, I don't like being there. If you want like my headspace of like how I feel when I'm in LA, I kind of feel like those guys like kind of getting suckered into like this underground hell pit, uh, <laughs> to borrow a phrase. So otherwise, I, I think everything else in this movie, I'm watching it and I'm just not loving it. I think the the one the scene that comes closest is to uh, where Brad Pitt has the conversation with uh, oh, what is the actress's name who plays the film critic? Uh, is it uh, Jean Smart? Yeah, Jean Smart. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Uh, her whole her whole conversation with him. I, I think that it, it's it's arriving at something kind of interesting, but then I'm just thinking about other movies that did it better. You know, I'm thinking of movies that have like dabbled in that same commentary. Take your pick of like Birdman or whatever. And then there's also Javon Depo, there's there's Lee Jun Lee, like these these characters sort of in the periphery of the movie who I almost just want to spend time with them instead of Nellie LeRoy, instead of Brad Pitt's character. I don't even remember his name. And I don't know why, but I just don't like the main surrogate character, Diego Calva's Manny. And I, I just don't I don't like him. I don't like spending time with his character. I find him genuinely sort of off-putting as a human being because like we're not examining sort of his callous nature. There's like this push and pull between him being kind of a dreamer, you know, of like, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, I get to be part of the business, but we kind of just lose that thread. Like he has a very promising start. Sure. I think once we get past like the like once he gets like into the pictures, like for real. I think I just I just don't I, I don't know I feel like I lost a thread on that character. What do you think? Well, I think his performance is very charming, and I, I 
don't take any issue with the character by design. I do take issue, however, with the film kind of paying more lip service to his rise and fall or rise, whatever, than actually depicting and showing. It feels like the movie kind of pushes him. I mean, he's ostensibly supposed to be the main character, but I feel like especially in the middle, he kind of gets sidelined a lot for the Brad Pitt and Marco Roby stories, which I get why they're more enticing and more intriguing for just, or for Chazelle to tell. But um, yeah, I, I feel like there's a lot left uh unexplored with his character which is an odd thing to say for a film that is well over three hours long but it, it did feel like he was kind of more like i said of an archetype than someone right, who really we keep felt yeah. it's like right when we start to spend some time with him and the choices that he's making like why he's going here why he's doing this why he cares about this then we go to other characters who i also think are interesting but then we move on from them so like there's the Catherine watterson character who plays uh one of brad pitt's characters you know ex-wives or whatever and then we also have uh the the director who uh, i forget the actress's name but she's the director who directs nelly Leroy and like that her first like shot you know and there's this sort of like kind of interesting dynamic between her and pj byrne yeah. who's the assistant director and i'm like this could be its own movie honestly sure. and i would be pretty invested i was definitely intrigued like i felt like it was kind of left unexplored like how she kind of made into the industry like especially a woman at the time and in that place like how she kind of established authority like how she was able to really kind of find that presence it seemed like that was like something that was teased but not really explored in the film outside of a, like a scene or two but yeah no I, I definitely was intrigued by that character to be sure ultimately i think that my, my main criticism remains where i just don't have the emotional connection and i can see why a lot of people other people don't and i think what's happening with the critics who are disliking this movie at least just speaking from my own experience and wondering if other people are experiencing the same is it's just hard to watch three hours of a movie where i'm not sucked into it as enough you know uh, especially when i think that it peaks pretty early on or you know when we get to the end of the the like the margot robbie scene where she's like trying to get through the talkie scene i think we still have like what an hour and a half left at that point and i'm genuinely just tired i i, I think that's what it is and to your credit, Will, I didn't watch it in one sitting. I did. Wa I watched it in two. I had an intermission. So there, there is something to be said about how I had I think, to kind uh, of like come back to it. I think you watched it in three, actually. Well, I did. I did start it uh, in a different format, and then something happened to it. So I had a re but I restarted it. I didn't just sort of like pause it five minutes in or whatever. Because I got through like the elephant scene in the very, very beginning. And then anyway, that said, I don't, I don't know if, if my opinion or my attitude toward this movie would have changed in a movie theater. Personally, I think a great movie is a great movie. Uh, if if it had, if it was really something I think would have connected to it, no matter what. There are plenty of movies I watched on screeners this year that I, I didn't need to see in a, in a movie theater to consider sure. one of the best of the year. I mean, to your, I mean, to that point, like I was joking with you that Babylon was for you this year's worst person in the world because you watched that in a similar fashion last year and if i sure. am not mistaken that was if not in your top 10 certainly in your top 20 of last year um, this year return to soul decision to leave these are movies in my top 10 and yeah i watched them as screeners sure so there you go um I don't know. I don't, what, it, it, what else do you want to say about the movie? I mean, was there anything else that was kind of burning you about this one? Because there are lots of like little pieces, but I, I just don't, I don't even know how to talk about the movie in a way that really ties everything together because there's so much like weird stuff happening everywhere that it's just hard to hone in on what to, what to make of it all. 
I mean, I guess I got to push back on your issue with the runtime in the sense that like, would this movie be more profitable or commercial or commercially uh, intriguing if it was not three hours? I'm sure. But I never, when I was actually just sitting there in the theater, watching them film, I never really felt like I didn't have like the restless leg syndrome. Like I didn't really find myself that put off by the runtime. I think it's the snappiness of it. I think it is just the fact that there's, it's always just constantly kind of moving except for like a couple few slow, slow moments here and there. Uh, I mean, granted, I agree with you that I feel like my emotional attachment to the film kind of range from amusement to entertainment to annoyance to intrigue to, you know, genuine entertainment to being, you know, back to like bemused and annoyed. Like I, I never really felt like a consistent sort of like, okay, this is great. Okay. This is terrible. Okay. I'm like loving this section, hating this. Like, I mean, there's certain scenes, obviously, as we mentioned, I think where the film really pops and I think it really works, but I didn't really find myself, I guess, as consistently, uh, combative to the film or, or annoyed by it, uh, to the point where I was totally turned off. I agree we, with you though. That is yeah. repetitive. I don't think it's saying enough, or saying anything original to the point where it really warrants that three-hour runtime. But I think as a director, Chazelle has proven himself enough that I, I think he deserves to have like a swing like this and like knowing that like, hey, I mean, sure, like in theory, like would a lot of these movies, like would a lot of the stories that are being told here be better if they were kind of chunked out into like six different films? Sure. But I think Chazelle is kind of like, hey, I don't know how many movies I'm going to get in this system. I'm a fairly young guy. I have the energy for it. I'm just going to kind of just do what I can, make my big, you know, epic to do. This is my look at Hollywood. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And I don't know. I guess for me, the the last scene of the film, which I won't detail because obviously it's a spoiler, but I feel like that just kind of summed up my general thoughts of the film, where I went into that kind of like intrigued, being annoyed that's so on the nose about what it is, being kind of swept up in again by some of the choices it makes. It lingers on one shot to the point where I thought it was going to be the last shot of the film, and I was kind of annoyed again because I was like, oh, this is a very cynical way to end the film. That does something just so deliberately indulgent and just... Uh, so, uh, you know, going for that big swing for the final few notes. And I was just once again taken by, I was just like, you know what? I just got to admire Chazelle. Not only does he know how to end a film, <laughs> as I think his last three films showed, but <laughs> I just admire him for like kind of knowing how to go out on a bang and just being like, all right, this is my thing. It's over. Have fun. Go home. And yeah, I mean, I think he's super try hard, especially with this film. Like, I don't think he's really kind of... Uh, uh, I, I feel like a lot of the things here, like the indulgences of it, feel well, hold on, a little bit more. I want to talk about the okay. the ending thing too sure, before okay. you move off that, because okay. I, I just want to say I think that I I agree that I, I like the guy for how he cares more about the ending than I think a lot of other directors do. He's always looking for a way. He he kind of reminds me, like Sean Baker is kind of a similar person where he gets that the ending sort of makes a movie for a lot of people, and I think that. You know, the ending is something that I think really helps La La Land and First Man and Whiplash just kind of be more than they are. I think the ending of this movie is fairly obnoxious. I think it's a disaster. I, I generally thought it was like, what a mistake, like okay. nothing but regrets. But at the All same right. time, I was already off the movie so much at this point, sure. I didn't care enough to have a strong reaction. So I, I get some people are sort of like, wow, to it, but n- n- no, not, not, not me. I was like, what the heck, dude? Like, uh, yeah, I'm not getting that from you, but you know. Sure. No, I'm, I'm not going like, wow, like 
what a brilliant ending. I'm just admiring, like, all right, dude, you're doing it. All right, I, all right. If you're going to go for the swing, you go for it, man. Uh, yeah, I, I think I'm just kind of, like, you know, cross my arms, just kind of having a devious smile on my face kind of at the end of it. Just like, all right, this is what you're going to do for the ending, buddy? All yeah, right, I got to respect well it. Yeah, I respect yeah. it. You know what? Hell yeah, dude. Go go for it. Um, but he is, a, he is a tryhard. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the thing. I think that's what pushes people off of him. I think that was kind of at the heart of people's general annoyance with uh, La La Land is that they felt it was sort of artificial. I don't agree, but I think people felt like it was like trying too hard. It was repetitive. It didn't quite earn its, you know, uh, swooning kind of romanticism. Uh, And I think I don't agree with it with that film. I agree with it to an extent with this film, but I guess I kind of like the film in spite of that. Okay. Look, here's the thing. With not with First Man necessarily, but with Whiplash, La La Land, and this movie, they have scenes that I want to rewatch just on their own. I love rewatching the opening number of La La Land. I think technically, in terms of its music, what it's doing, what it's about, the commentary of it, of like LA and winter, you know, and the, the traffic and everything. It's a movie that I love just coming back to just to revisit, you know, to hang out with it. Whiplash. I mean, how many people have just watched that ending, you know, 10 minutes over and over again because of like what it's doing and, oh, yeah. and what it reminds you of watching it for the first time. That's what In I, this movie. Uh... This That's movie has that stuff too. Yeah, I was gonna say. I as soon as I got home from Babylon, I just rewatched the end of Whiplash. I was just like, <laughs> I need to see this again. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Sure. I just want to make sure I said I, that. I don't blame you whatsoever because I I think with this movie there there are moments here where like yeah I would love to rewatch. You know, them, you know, trying to get the elephant up the hill, the whole thing with, uh, you know, the Tobey Maguire sequence. I, I would rewatch for sure, you know, the whole How a Silent Film Gets Made portion. Just that on its own as a short film or something is, I think, uh, a, a tremendous achievement for the guy. And I think it is a result of the fact that he tries hard. He works hard. I think he can be very off-putting as a as a director for a lot of people and his attitude towards certain things. And, you know, people take a lot of the, you know, the personal into that sure that you have your right to do that i think for me it comes down to this brad pitt in this movie i i think that it just doesn't work i don't even think that he's miscast but i just don't think i don't think the character really works i think that uh you know it's functional right i think that his character is kind of interesting in spurts if anything but there's just nothing surprising or subversive about it it's all obvious and it's just something that it just frustrated me because I was like, I feel like I've already gotten this kind of guy before in so many other movies. I've kind of gotten Brad Pitt in this mode with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I thought that was, I don't know, a more interesting version of this mode for the guy. Like, I don't care, but I'm in Hollywood and I'm just going to do wild and reckless things. And I just don't like what happens with this character or how it handles it. Like, if you're going to do what they do with this character, I think that I don't know. It needs to be treated with a little bit more care. The way it's done, I think it's supposed to be, I don't know, touching, grandiose. I'm not even sure. There's even a scene where he's like watching other people watch his movie. And again, it reminds me of seeing Margot Robbie, you know, watching as uh, Sharon Tate in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, people watching her movie. And it's like night and day for me in terms of like which scene is more successful, even though they're totally different scenes and they have different purposes and goals. They're using the same function and form right and yeah it's just a struggle for me because i think margot robbie obviously in this movie she's kind of the main event she's the reason that i think the movie works at all because her performance isn't is as try hard as damien chazelle's directing in a lot of ways so 
that's kind of how I come off of it. It's like, if it's not for her, I think I probably would have really disliked this movie. Instead, I, I, I like it okay. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm more favorable ultimately on Brad Pitt's performance. Uh, I don't Should we think it's quite... the whole thing, the allegations against Brad Pitt, by the way, with Angelina uh, Jolie. Yeah. And... Sure, if you want to talk about that, yeah, it, it it hangs over the movie like a cloud. I, I thought about it a bit. Sure. Know? I mean, yeah, yeah. Go I, ahead. I, the short version is that you know there's some allegations from his ex-wife Angelina Jolie that he you know abused her and one of his kids you know on a plane and, uh, several years ago. Uh, so you know, obviously that's just. Yeah. That's just something that if you if you're aware of that and you're watching the sure. movie, it's kind of like uh, you know, yeah, like, especially with I some mean, of the stuff that happens. I mean, she's, yeah, I mean, and especially because his character's such a booze hound. Reportedly, there's a lot of stuff with him uh, where he, you know, allegedly was heavily drinking, and that kind of result resulted in the the dissolve of his marriage and potentially um, that incident on the plane that you mentioned. Uh, so I get, I think that's part of it. I think there is an intended sort of gravitas with having Brad Pitt in that role. Like, I, I don't know what it would be like with like a lesser actor or an unknown actor in that part. Um, especially given that I, I think I agree with you that like, I don't, I don't think his final moment felt really earned. Like, I don't think I felt the intensity that was supposed to be going for it. Cause it's very clearly trying to evoke a similar scene from Boogie Nights, which is a lot more effective. Yes. Um, and I feel like, this movie just kind of felt like, all right, now we're going to just get to this moment. All right, take your time. I know what's going to happen. Just, all right, let's do it. Um, you know who I would have put it? You know who I would have recasted him, Will? And you're going to hate this. You're okay. going to call me a, a dork. Sure. This should have been John Hamm. I think John Hamm would have been the right choice for this character. The I'm reason just- it can't be John Hamm is because he just doesn't have that cinematic presence. He does. He has it. He has no, it because but I'm in saying, this like, kind doesn't of have role, the career for Hollywood. Like I'm saying, like you're talking TV. Like I get, like I'm not, and this I'm not trying to relitigate a conversation we already had. <laughs> yeah, we're here. It's like Mad for Mad some Mad reason, Mad. you think John Hamm hasn't been in movies? He's been in movies. I'm just saying he hasn't <laughs> had the career. Like Brad I get Pitt, it. What you're saying the meta textual, yeah, like Brad Pitt is an A list actor. Yeah, yes, yes, of course, of yeah. course. I thought you were going to say Leonardo DiCaprio. I would prefer, though, DiCaprio probably would have been good for this role, too, I guess. But for me, what I was missing was, like, I think John Hamm does have that line between he's charismatic and charming, but he's also a total goofball underneath. And I think Brad Pitt is kind of doing that here, and I think John Hamm would have pulled it off better. Uh, I think that John Hamm has that dorky dad energy that I I was missing here. But okay, that's just my take. That's my hot take. You can call me again. You can you can call me up and down. It's all right. All right. Uh, well, again, I mean, I'm not saying that he would have done a bad job. I'm just saying that for what they're intending, why they casted Brad Pitt. I, I you don't always think... assume the worst of guys named John. I know. Sure. Um, <laughs> but also, I don't really get the sense that John or sorry, Brad Pitt is supposed to be super dorky in this. Like he's supposed to be kind of goofy, but I don't think he's supposed to be like a dork. Like well, he's I mean, over the hill. Right. Sure. And, yes, you know, he's over the I, hill, but not. Dorky. And I think that Damien Chazelle has that attitude of like the actors of this time have the persona that they're not like total like you know dweebs. Oh they're, yeah, they're he's, he's to oblivious be... to a certain extent of his uh, dwindling fame, but it's also not, not really at, at the same time. I don't know. I mean, but there's a there's an earnestness to it, you know. Like he genuinely goes sure. to the theater because he hopes that his performance is good and he cares. Like he cares about how his art is coming through to people. Well, and he, I do think there's something interesting about that. But I think he kind of knows that it's not. Because there's a scene earlier that, from that actor and that character where he like kind of knows that it's not working, but he gets false assurances that like, oh, it's good. It's brilliant. And it's like, OK. And that's why he goes to the theater because he's not 100 percent sure. He's like, all right, well, maybe if I go to the movies, maybe I'll kind of be proven right 
Yeah. Like proven wrong. Or proven wrong. Yeah, tricked yeah, myself. Yeah. Yeah, but then he he's actually proven right. Yeah, but he's proven yeah. right. So I think he's a little bit more complex than that. But I get what you're saying, broadly speaking. Like I think the character, like many of the main characters in this film, are kind of uh, broadly drawn and not fully realized. Like I feel like they're kind of servicing uh, like chess pieces in this big chess game that or what Damien Giselle is, is playing here. And I feel like that is probably one of the main reasons why I didn't really find the film as emotionally investing as I think it should have been to be a truly great epic film. But look, but, you know what? Yeah. We still got to give it to the film, the fact that we've talked about it as much as we have. And, and I I like the at movie. least there is something to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, that kind of gets into what I'm trying to say is that like, I recognize these things don't work. Like I, I recognize the things that are worth nitpicking that I don't think come together. But at the end of the day, I think about the film and I recall my experience. And I think it's fun. It's enjoyable. I think it, it doesn't quite succeed in all it's trying to do, but I, I kind of appreciate it for that reason. Like I think it's kind of, it's going for that big swing as much as Giselle is just kind of trying too hard, trying to emulate his peers and not really kind of earning that uh, emotional gravitas and those stakes that he's really desperately trying to recreate. I don't know. There's just something very, I feel, appealing about the fact that he made a film like this, the fact that he was allowed to make a film like this. Uh, and we didn't even really talk about the comedy of it, which I feel was hit or miss to say uh, the least, I guess. like I've, I feel like some of it is kind of amusing. A lot of it feels like it's... Uh, Again, trying way too hard to kind of get these outrageous laughs. And There's I feel one like gut buster uh, involving uh, during the Tobey Maguire sequence. Uh, I won't give it away. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so the counterpart to Diego Calva says something that I generally had to pause because I was laughing so hard. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't know. At the end of the day, I, I, I think it's worth the theater experience. Like, I, I know it's not going to be in theaters for long. I think if you can see it, if you're interested in it, I think it's worth seeing. I I. I don't think it stands up compared to uh, his previous films, but I admire the guy. I almost want to, yeah, because I almost want to ask you what do you think of its awards chances, but I guess we have to play the Rotten Tomatoes game first to sort of see like, okay, well, where are critics at and everything? But did you get spoiled on all that stuff? Um, I don't think so. I I know the Rotten Tomatoes score was kind of going up and down and going from fresh to rotten, but it wasn't really spoiled on the score itself. Um, okay. At least not recently. I think for a lot of people, it's it's divisive, you know, but it's winningly divisive. And sure. I still think it's a bit of a question mark of like how it's going to do with oh, awards uh, because awards wise, I don't think it's going to make much of an impact. It's got the nominations from Critics Choice right now, but I think that's because it's before, you know, I think people have really settled in on a narrative around the movie and the box office narrative, I think, is going to be pretty overwhelming. So if it does get nominated for some things, I don't know, it might. I mean, I don't think, yeah, I don't think it's going to come through as a big favorite. Yeah. I mean, I I normally say the movies that are about Hollywood tend to favor well. So who knows? I mean, you know, anything anything could happen. But I think the fact that we're coming into. Yeah. Yeah. It almost be, fact, might be a process of elimination thing with like Fableman's right. not taken off as much as they hoped, White Noise. I mean, there are a lot of movies that I think uh, just aren't, don't have the juice. So it might kind of squeeze in, squeak in, and then have a big second win, a comeback. I mean, I, I do, I was going to say, I think considering that we already got Nope and, as you mentioned, the Fableman's this year, uh, two films about filmmaking in some respect or another that I think are notably better than this film ultimately and uh, I think have better awards chances because of it. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't really see it being a guarantee. I see it maybe getting some technical uh, notices because I think it is on a technical front really well made. 
It is. Uh, yeah. I, I think that the, you know, cinematography, editing, especially the score, I think is one of my favorites of the year. I didn't really even get to talk much about the score. Uh, I think it's a Honestly, fantastic I didn't, I didn't love the score. Uh, it's okay. Justin Hurwitz again, who is, uh, you know, frequent collaborator, frequent collaborator sure. with uh, Chazelle done all of his movies. But for some reason, it, just, it didn't hit me. Well, you know what? Not yet. I'll, I'll give it a couple more shots, you know? I got to disagree, man. I've listened to the score several times since I've seen the film. It's one of the few scores this year I've actually gone back and listened to. So That's great. I, I might have yeah. to just kind of buckle down with it. I don't know. But uh, yeah. So, and then uh, we, we also didn't say Linus Sandgren, uh, terrific cinematographer. One of, one of the current greats uh, did this one as well. Um, but that said, I think that in terms of awards, anything can happen. Ultimately, it doesn't matter that much to whether or not the person listening to this show is going to like it for themselves. You have a chance to see it in theaters. Yeah, I, th- I think that if you if you consider yourself a fan of film, even if you're somebody who is like not well versed on silent film, and you're like, yeah, I don't even know where to start, you know. And like, I, maybe maybe there are some people listening who are sort of aware that like, yeah, there's this whole era of silent films, and maybe you haven't seen that many or any, and you're kind of like, well, what's the big deal? Right. And I do think there is a romanticism of silent films that this movie kind of pokes at, but kind of celebrates at the same time. Not kind of. Actually, it does celebrate it, but it kind of celebrates it in a kind of a frank, blunt way that I think is kind of interesting that I think could ignite some people watching to be like, man, I got to see some of the films that they're hearkening to here because I think it's worth uh, worth checking out. I think it's uh, the silent film era is so fun. And it's so just different. And there's so many of them you can watch for free on YouTube and stuff like that. So there, at least there's that. At least there's that. Okay, Rotten Tomatoes game. Are you ready to play the game? Well, I know that uh, you know, you're kind of saying you're, you're not, you don't really know where it's at. Sure. But uh, let, let's see how you do. So, okay. 219 reviews have been counted on Rotten Tomatoes. So I'm uh, not sure how many more might come through here. So we might have a pretty, you know, pretty locked in score within a couple points or so. What do you okay. think Rotten Tomatoes is saying right now? You've got a lot of hints. Uh, I, I, I know, like I said, it's on, it's teetering on that edge between fresh and rotten. It's definitely not certified fresh. Um, I think it's more fresh than not, but not by a lot. I'm going to say 61%. So it was in the sixties for a while. Okay. It was, it, it was kind of like between 60 and 65. I don't remember if it ever got into the seventies. I don't think it did. But uh, yeah, it is not in the 60s. It's in the 50s. Okay, so I'm going to give you one more shot. You have a, a whole line of, you know, opportunities there. So between 50 to 59, what do you, th- what do you think it is? Uh, is it 56%? Ah, oh, so close. So close. It might be 56 by tomorrow. Who knows? But uh, it's 55 right now. Okay. Yeah. And it's dropping. I think I think it was like, yeah, again, it was, it was a little bit higher. It's going down. I think... Yeah, some people are coming out and they're watching it and reviewing it and they're just saying uh, Babylon, more like Babel off mm. because, you know, there was something off about this movie. Anyway, okay, audience score, you have 250 plus verified sure. ratings. That's probably how many people went to go see it, uh, 250. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, Will Ash, an audience score? Uh, I think audiences are going to be a little bit more receptive to the film. Uh, and I kind of wonder if this is going to kind of earn, maybe not like a cult following, but maybe like... I think people might be, you know, a little bit won over with the film with time, but I can't say that with certainty. A lot of critics are claiming that's going to happen. Yeah, I don't know for sure. I'm kind of wondering. I I don't know. I I think it, it, that three hour runtime is a big hill to climb, but I don't know. We haven't really even talked about how people have been criticizing the marketing for the film. I guess there was like a whole cringy TikTok marketing for the film that <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't even know about until after the fact. 
Um, so I'll, I'll say my piece on that once you do your guess. I have sure. a quick thing about it. All right. Uh, with no further delay, I will say 74%. It, you're, you're extremely off. Um, okay, it's extremely lower off. than it's oh, lower okay. than the critics were. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah. Audi- audiences oh, are man. like, I paid 20 bucks for this. <laughs> <laughs> it's 49%. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, which is, definitely, yeah, uh, yeah, pretty was bad. off. Yeah. Well, um, we'll look at we'll look at cinema score too. I think you did get spoiled on that, but because the cinema score was all over the place earlier. Uh, that said, I, in terms of the marketing, I think some people are kind of like people are doing all kinds of claims that I think is kind of coping. Honest, uh, people are taking some copium, maybe a little bit with this movie, being like, "Well, it's because of the marketing. It, it's because they marketed it wrong." And I think the marketing was kind of honest about what kind of movie it is, which is like you should go see this because it's insane, it's ridiculous. Look at all this. Oh my gosh, like she's fighting a snake. Like that is the energy of the movie. That's how they marketed it. And some people are sort of saying like, if they had marketed it differently, I don't know if it would have made much of a difference. Honestly, that's my take. I think people are just overestimating the fact that they like something that's kind of out of step with the mainstream and they should accept that because like, that's okay. Don't you, don't you think you're cool? Don't you think it's cool to like things that the mainstream doesn't like? I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand what motivates people sometimes, but I think people generally wanted this to be successful. That That is sort of, you know, they wanted this to make money. So like, please market it right so that it makes money and it does well because they want yeah. more movies like this to be made. So I get that. I mean, it's Paramount. It's about a decade after Wolf of Wall Street, another kind of three-hour bombastic epic in this vein. I think the difference there, of course, is that Martin Scorsese, uh, well, in addition to being a totally different film landscape right now compared to 2013, uh, I think you know uh, Martin Scorsese has kind of earned that public trust where it's like, well, it's three hours, but it's Martin Scorsese. I mean, I got to go see that movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. As well, they should because Wolf of Wall Street's an awesome movie. Um but yeah, I, I think Chazelle, like we said, I think he they 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 think I think the marketing thought he had more kind of cachet on that name than maybe he has at this point. Maybe if they had been more like from the director of Whiplash and La La Land, as opposed to just being like from writer director Damien Chazelle and being like that's all you need to know. As as I, I don't think he's quite that household name yet, and I think they maybe kind of shot themselves in the foot. If, yeah, because uh, people that saw part. La La Land because they love Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling, right? Right, and it looked and, really uh, fun. Yeah, and Emma Stone was supposed to be the Margot Robbie, uh, you know, part. Which I'm, I'm glad they got. I, I'm glad they got Margot Robbie. I think that was the right call. Good yeah, I mean, I think it fit better for her, though. I yeah. do. I, this is something I actually kind of want to talk about with you before a little bit. I feel like she's kind of getting pigeonholed into these kind of eccentric, flighty, like unpredictable, but now kind of predictable kind of characters. I guess like, yeah, the Harley Quinn, the Tanya right. Harding. It, it is a bit of an archetype for her, but we're about to get Barbie. And uh, so, you know, just wait. I think Barbie's going to break the break the barrier there. I was going to say, because, I mean, she's had like, uh, I mean, critically, you know, she's kind of been up and down. Also, Amsterdam was another one. I I know you hadn't seen that one. Um, You know, like a string of films that haven't been doing well, either at the box office or critics or both. But I do think that Barbie has a great chance of uh, bucking that trend and being a true, you know, critical and commercial smash. And, and uh, Amsterdam, re- by the way, is on, yeah. it's on HBO Max. So I, might, I might check it out. No, it's on uh, there. So. I mean, you don't have yeah, to. I have, but... time, I have a couple of things I'd get to first. But sure. uh, uh, Cinema Score, do you know what that one is? Yeah. So I don't know what you mean by it going up and down, but I had heard that it was at C+. It is a C+. Which I actually, I, when I watched it, I was like, this feels like a C, but uh, no, 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 C plus folks in Vegas, they, uh, you know, they didn't give it snake eyes. 
but uh, uh, what about uh, Letterboxd? Zero to five. Um, it has uh, 26,000 watches. That's not I was going to ask how many watches. I was very curious about that one. Um, I think this one's going to be, uh, you know, kind of down the middle, but, you know, it's both a love and hate letter to cinema. And I feel like that could be more on Letterboxd's graces than, you know, your average audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. So I'm going to say 3.2. Again, this hasn't been your game. Okay. Uh, 3.8, a little bit higher. You were that off. 3.8. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Doing a little so right line of thinking, but I was, uh, you know, not confident enough. Yeah. So that is Babylon. And, uh, you know, I, I got to admit, well, I was a little nervous going into this. I thought you were going to give me a whole hard time, bully me a little bit, light bullying, uh, for not liking as much as uh, you. And I don't know, Corey really liked this movie, right? And yeah, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm looking at the, the Babylon, you know, sort of, you know, letterboxed community here. And there's a range, obviously, like people I really like giving it two stars. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, but I'm also seeing people give it fours and four and a halfs and fives. And I, I just hope that people give this one a shot, you know, because I hope that they're in that camp. Uh, it is a movie that I think that if, it, if it's three hours of movie that you're going to love, then that's great news. Uh, but yeah, I know some people are just going to look at it and say, no, thank you. Uh, sure. Certainly, people like uh, like Isaac Feldberg, front of the show, gave it like a half star. Yeah, <laughs> um, but so, uh, there is that. On the opposite side of that equation, uh, Mike Sir, my friend who came on the uh, um, Amsterdam episode, he saw the mm-hmm. film with me, gave it four and a half stars on layer. That's fa- that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I'm more I'm more like in the three three and a half range, and wow. you know I, I Wait, hate to be that guy who's I'm, I'm riding the fence. You know, oh, um, man, I thought you were like two and a half at best. Two and a, you know what? No, I, yeah, well, not two and a half. I think there's too much good stuff. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, if it's two and a half, that means that it, it really just let me down fully or not, not even fully, but it's just so middling. But I, I got to give it at least three. You know, okay. I could go up to three and a half if I watch it again. How about that? So, mm. all knows? right, man. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so that is Babylon. Uh, next week, I don't know what we're talking about. We could talk about Puss and Boots, The Last Wish. We could talk about White Noise. Uh, we could talk about uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. I feel like there's plenty. I don't think I'm going to watch Whitney Houston. I want to dance with somebody until it hits streaming. Uh, that's just a personal decision sure. I made. Uh, I know we've been wanting to talk about After Sun and Women Talking, so we could also look at doing those. What do you think? Oh, and there's the Pale Blue Eye. I think. Well, I would like to talk about the Pale Blue Eye, but I think the most fun, most exciting option would be to do another eight ogre reunion, bring my buddy Matt, Matt and Chris on to discuss. Have they Puss both seen Boots. it now? I know Matt saw it. Did Chris? Yeah, Matt and I saw it. I don't think Chris has seen it yet, but I, I imagine he's going to be seeing it soon. Okay. Well, I do. I do think that that is the movie that uh, I. <laughs> I think that would probably be the most fun, just because uh, I get. I mentioned it at the beginning of the show. It, it it feels like it's getting like Paddington raves, like that level sure. of like this is like I, a kids movie that's way better than uh, the typical. Sure. I saw a friend today on Facebook say it's the best animated film since Spider-Verse. Which, you know what? I, I In case you don't know already, I, I'm i not uh, in that sort of zone <laughs> whatsoever. I, I, I think I think it's okay. Uh, not a movie I love, uh, personally. All right. That's okay. Let's talk about it next time. We'll talk We'll talk about it. Maybe, yeah, maybe that'll be what we talk about next week. It just blows my mind, Will, that we're sort of like a new Noah Baumbach movie with Greta Gerwig and Adam Driver. Oh, I talked about Puss in it. Boots 2. 
Oh, I mean, uh, I uh, I've been reading the book White Noise. So I'd, you I'd haven't seen it yet. About, I know it's. Uh, Where do you see it? Uh, I don't know. It hasn't played anywhere near me, but I think it's going to be on Netflix starting uh, this weekend. Uh, I believe yeah, first week of January. I say that uh, not confidently because I'm I, getting stuff mixed up. I thought it goes on to Netflix December, like right before New Year's. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there you go. It's been in limited release, but nobody's been talking about it. How strange. I wonder why that is. It could possibly be because it's not good. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see what you think um, on the next episode or two of Cinemaholics. So from yeah. the Internet, California, I'm John Agroni. And from the Internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Will Ashton. Happy see New Year. See you next time. Happy New Year. <laughs>